Careers of Danger and Daring by Cleveland Moffat. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Pilot, Part 2, which shows how pilots on the St. Lawrence fight the ice flows. No study of pilot life can be complete without the mention of the river pilot who has to face the perils in the rapids not a whit less real than those faced by his brother pilots on the sea. I got my first glimpse of the river pilot, oddly enough, in frozen December time, when even that great waterway of North America, I mean the St. Lawrence, was all but a solid bed of ice. Not quite, however, and to that chance I owe a glimpse of Canadian boatmen at the hazard of their winter work, which is nonetheless interesting for being unfamiliar. It was 15 degrees below zero, just pleasant Christmas weather in Quebec, and the old river of saintly fame was grinding along with his gorge of ice, streaming along under the dazzle of sun, steaming up little clouds of frozen water vapor, low-hanging and spreading over it like tumbled fleece in patches of shine and shadow. Quite a balloon effect, I fancied, as I came down the cliff. In a tugboat office at the river's edge, chatting around a stove, yet bundled thickly as if no stove were there, I found some half-dozen sharp-glancing men who might have been actors in New York or noblemen in Russia. I judged by the fineness of their fur, but they were pilots here. Lower river pilots who, as one of them assured me, are vastly more important than the upper river kind. I learned also from one who wore a coat of yellowish-gray skins with otter trimming that they were a belated company who would start shortly for Orleans Island across the ice. That was Orleans Island over there to the left. No, it didn't seem far, but I might find it far enough if I tried to get there. At this they all laughed. Meekly I sat down, as was befitting, and listened to the talk. They conversed in bad French or worse English, and were most of them, strange to say, Scotsmen who had never seen Scotland and never would. Douglases and Browns, and McGregors who couldn't pronounce their own names, but could take a liner to the Gulf day or night, through the reefs of Crane Island, past the menacing twin pilgrims, by windings and dangers, safe down to the sea. I asked the man what they were going to Orleans Island for, and he explained that they lived there through the winter months, they and other pilots, many others. It was a pilot colony set out in Main Street. Yes, it was cut off from land, quite cut off, but they liked it so. Sometimes they didn't come ashore for weeks. It was not exactly fun fighting those ice flows, and they all laughed again. Well, not exactly. Meantime, several jolly little cutters, no higher than cradles, had jingled up with more men in furs and one woman, also boxes and bundles. Pilots, I asked. The man nodded. And the woman? This lady, pilot's wife, she been sick. And he went on, in a jargon that is charming, but not for imitation, to explain that they would lay the sick lady in the bottom of the boat and pile coats over her and around her until it was tolerably sure she wouldn't freeze. From the way he spoke, one would fancy they were about to start for the North Pole, but I presently understood that this two-mile ice journey over the crackling St. Lawrence, the crackling comes from the ice crust, breaking as the tide drops underneath it, is about as hard a test of man's endurance as any Arctic performance. They were all gathered now, save one, whose cutter tarried still. He was a good pilot, but over-fond of the convivial glass, and was no doubt at this very moment in some uproarious company, forgetful that the start was to be sharp on the hour. Well, they would give him ten minutes more. Say, fifteen minutes? Pouvoir? 
garçon. Then they fell to discussing winter navigation and whether it would ever come on the St. Lawrence as it had on the rivers in Russia. A pilot in coonskins was sure it would come. They would put on one of these newfangled ice-crushing steamers to keep the main channel open. Sacre bleu, there you are. That would save five months every year. But the others shook their heads. They didn't believe it, and they didn't want it anyway. A pilot, sir, must have certain time to smoke his pipe. Then one man told what the ice did to a sailing vessel he was taking down the river late one season. He hoped never to take another down so late. He had got out of his course one night in the dangerous ways off Crane Island and finally dropped anchor to hold her against the crush of ice. But the anchor chain snapped like a shoestring under the ice pressure, and they were borne along on a glacier field until they struck a reef, just what he had feared. Now the ice could neither break the reef nor drive them over it, but it ground its way right through the schooner's stern, ripping her wide open so that the river poured in and down went the yard arms, touching the hummocks, with pilots and crew left to scramble over the flow as best as they could in the darkness and wait for daylight on the frozen rocks. At this the others, taking up the cue of thrilling happenings, told stories of dangers on the river, one after another, until the tardy pilot, who had jingled up meanwhile unnoticed, was in his turn forced to wait for them. I was putting off one night, began a tall man who spoke better English than the rest, just putting off from this very place. Ash nothing, interrupted the latecomer. I saw swordfish clash a whale once off Shangane River. A whale and a swordfish. Then he mumbled to himself, and he dozed by the stove. The tall man went on with his tale, which described how, on the night in question, he was about to board a downcoming steamer of the Leyland Line, where he was to take the place of the Montreal pilot, when she crashed into a tramp steamer coming up in a head-on collision, and two sailors, sleeping in their bunks, were instantly killed. He described the panic that ensued, and told what they did, and wound up with a queer theory, which he declared perfectly sound, and the others agreed with him, that the growth of cities along the river is every year increasing the danger of such night collisions through the dazzle of the lights. Presently we started for the boats, a burly line, with caps reaching down and collars reaching up until everything was covered, eyes, forehead, chin, everything but a peeping place for the nose and eyes. I can still hear the squeak and crunch of the snow underfoot and see the glare of it. We pass the snowfield, where the river boys are left through winter, spar boys, gas boys, and bell boys ranged along now like great red tops, numbed by the cold, to sleep. Then they put off in the boats, three open boats, that were sleds as well, with runners on the flat bottoms and ends turned up in an easy slant, so that when the broken ice gets too thick for paddling, they may be hauled up to slide over it. This queer method of transit is practiced on the St. Lawrence by those who dare, during certain weeks of the winter, when the river is no longer open, nor yet frozen into a solid ice bridge, but partly open and partly solid. So it was now. The first rule of the boats is that every man lay a hand to the paddle and work. There were no passengers here but the sick, and they were rarely taken. Not that the pilots would mind paddling other men across, but the other men would almost certainly freeze if they sat still. There is no safety against the blasts that sweep the river when the glass says twenty below, but in vigorous, ceaseless exertion. So there they go through the ice-choked river, swinging their paddles lustily, every pilot of them, heads nodding under the black Ashrakhan caps, shoulders heaving, off for home. 
Now they strike the first solid place and the men forward climb out carefully and heave up the boat's nose a couple of feet to see if the ice can hold her. Then all climb out and with dragging and pushing get ahead for a hundred feet or so. See, now they stop and swing their arms. Already the pitiless wind is biting through their furs. And think of that poor woman. Presently, they reach an open spot some dozen yards across, and all but one take place in the boat, the stern man standing behind on the ice to push off, and then, with a nicely judged effort, spring aboard as he gives the last impulse that shoots her into the river. From the open space, they paddle into a jam of grinding ice blocks that hold hard against them, but are scarce solid enough to hold the sledge. They must work through somehow, poling and fending to yonder heaped-up ledge, where they go again on a great rough raft of ice that will test their muscle and their skills before they get across, and drift them a quarter of a mile or so upriver while they're doing it. Upriver, did I say? Yes, for there is this odd thing about the St. Lawrence, even at Quebec, that its current streams up and down, up and down, as the tide changes. For seven hours, the river conquers the tide, and the water runs down to the sea. Then for five hours, the tide conquers the river, and the water runs up from the sea. So now, after all their toiling, they're actually further from home than when they started. They should have set out before the turn of the tide. That was their plan. But they waited until just after the turn, and will pay for the delay and their yarn spinning with an hour more of this ice fighting than they need have had. And an hour out here is a long, long time. Even here, on the bank, much less than an hour is enough of time. The cold grows piercing. The day is drawing to a close. The sky is dull. The river grinds on with its grayish burden. On the heights of Louis, on the opposite shore, some of the lights of the early evening break out. There also pilots live. Indians come from an Indian village down the river where they make peerless birch canoes. All along this grand St. Lawrence live men whose business is to face unusual perils, whose nerve fails them whether paddling some frail bark through the furious rapids or guiding a steamboat down a raging torrent with many lives in their keeping. We must see more of these men and watch them at their work. We must see the Iroquois pilots at their reservation near Montreal, the lads Lord Wosley took with him up the Nile to brave its cataracts when the English set out in 1884 to bring relief to Gordon. We must see Big John famous now for the years as wheelsmen of the great excursion boats that shoot the rage of waters at Lachine. We must see the raftsmen, too, and, ah, but it's cold here. Let's climb the cliff again and find some shelter. End of Part 2, The Pilot, Careers of Danger and Daring by Cleveland Moffat, read by Jerry Becker.